Dior Talks. Hello, I'm Justine Piccadilly, and I'm the author of a new book, Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture, about Christian Dior and his younger sister Catherine, who was a heroine of the French Resistance in the Second World War. Welcome to a new episode of Dior Talks, a series that explores sisterhood and feminism, which Dior's creative director, Maria Grazia Curie, has put at the heart of her life's work. Today, I'll be talking to Felicity Jones, the award-winning British actress whose acclaimed and diverse performances have placed her at the forefront of women working in the film industry. She's also an admirer of Maria Grazia Curie and has often chosen to wear Dior on and off the red carpet. Her feminist principles are always to the fore. Well, I'm thrilled today, this it's a sunny Sunday afternoon, and I'm really happy to be talking to Felicity Jones, who's somebody that I have admired as an actor for such a long time. And, and I feel that she's really been part of, probably in ways she doesn't realise, of, of my life, because I started listening to her on, on a radio series many, many years ago, um, The Archers. So it's she's been part of my life for, for far longer than um, I've been part of hers, though we did know each, get to know each other when I was the editor of Harper's Bazaar. But um, I wanted to start, Felicity, by by asking you about the fact that you started your professional acting career as a, as a child. And I wondered if you could share with us how the industry has changed in its attitudes towards women since you first began working in it. I think it's changed enormously. Uh, it's been fascinating in the last few years going through what is a revolution. I mean, not only in the industry, but across the board in in gender politics and it's just been wonderful I feel like so many of the things that I was privately um, experiencing have been exposed and overturned and particularly one of those was um, working in an uh, often a film set's a bit like a can be a bit like a building site and and a very very male dominated environment and it's interesting how much it was a part of my working life to be in these all-male environments and and how wrong that was, really. And so to see the attention now being paid to making sure that there is a gender balance is remarkable. I mean, I still feel like we're far to go. I was on a film set recently following the Me Too movement and it was still, you know, a load of guys behind the camera. But I think there's a lot more attention at having a gender-balanced crew and it makes such an enormous difference to the way that you work, to the way that you feel on set. It provides a far more harmonious working environment and and it's particularly those departments in, in lighting and camera that women really do need to feel encouraged to go into those areas to make sure there is that balance. And when the Me Too movement sort of came about, did you feel a sense of recognition in the stories that were being shared? 
I think it was a, a societal acceptance of behavior. I think we have seen a radical shift in accepting that people could be bullying, that that was, you know, people were allowed to act like that because, you know, they were powerful and in charge. And I think there's been a just an amazing reckoning of that. But I think particularly in the entertainment industry, I think it's been such an uncharted industry. I think it was so almost like such a private industry in a way that so much bad behavior could go unchecked and I was watching the morning show recently and just thought it was fantastic because it really got at the heart oh, oh it's a wonderful it's so brilliant yeah it, I loved it too it got so at the heart of the matter as well that how everyone in a way was complicit and and it it was just accepted that certain people could behave in a certain way and now obviously it seems absolute madness so I just think it's been fantastic I think the industry was stuck in a time warp it was it was just completely following its own rules and and it's been long overdue to provide some sort of proper behavioral structure I mean it was just completely uncharted it's interesting because I think any industry you know the film industry is one of those that is very closed Mm. and has a kind of otherness to it it's a closed world as you said and of course there are other closed worlds it's not the only one but that's allowed a a culture to develop in a very unquestioning way it feels I mean I agree with you it feels like something pretty remarkable has happened yeah absolutely yeah long overdue yeah and you studied English literature at, at Oxford University, which I always think is, was a very interesting thing to do, given how successful you were as a, as a child actress. But I wonder, did that experience give you a different sense of perspective on the ways in which women are portrayed on stage and screen as, as well as in literature? Yeah, I think I think definitely. I think um obviously in novels and and plays you you find remarkable female characters and and then to think why aren't these kind of characters translating into film and television? It did always seem a little bit odd. I mean, theater throughout the centuries you've always had fantastic female parts and and it's just taken a long time for, for film and television to catch up. And I, I think that is because it was just such a, particularly directing, I mean, it was seen as, it's just been such a male-dominated industry. And it sort of came from this idea, which is total rubbish, of the kind of the cult of the genius, which mm. I think is so false and so destructive. Because if you look back in history, People don't do things on their own. You know, you look at these, you know, someone like Hitchcock had his extraordinary wife who was yes. helping him and and was such a part of the brains of what he produced. And it's such a lie, really, the idea of the genius. And it's always men who are seen as geniuses. Women never are allowed to be seen in that way. And and I think that perpetuated an, an industry where it felt like there were all these barriers to entry for female directors. So then in turn the stories were just being told from such a singular perspective. And so to start to see that opening up, and particularly in, in television, is is just a, a breath of fresh air. I mean, it just feels like it should have always been like that. And it's been so reassuring to see so many of the things that I would read and I would discuss with Agent Claire Marusas for years. We'd almost laugh at some of the parts and the way they were written for women. And now to see things that we were kind of hoping for just 
landing on your lap is, is um, yeah, it's just such a relief. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, in, in literary tradition, there have been these incredibly powerful and, and compelling female authors from Jane Austen to the Bronte sisters, um, George Eliot, Daphne du Maurier, and, you know, all the way through to the present day, but, you know, including Margaret Atwood, great writers like Margaret Atwood. But what I find interesting is there was that great 19th century tradition of of the great female novelist, Mm. and it didn't translate onto screen when perhaps, you know, the birth of the film industry, which is interesting. And although I suppose... I mean, it was the same with great stage writers. I mean, we think of, when we think of the great tradition, you know, we think of Shakespeare, Marlowe, George Bernard Shaw. It's much harder to find those female voices Mm. on the stage and screen than writing novels. But I think we're seeing, particularly actually in in television, some of those long-form series in drama that have really been revolutionised by perhaps by the streaming services. It's as if you're seeing the great 19th century novel <laughs> arising again and being told in long form in a serialised way. Mm. Well, interestingly, yeah, the novels actually do lend themselves much better to TV shows because yes. it's this it's you've got that that length to tell a story. So they they work good novels work perfectly for TV and interestingly I've always found that actually lesser novels with lots of plot work much better for cinema. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I think television has opened up um, a female discourse in that, you know, I, I May Destroy You was just exquisite. Yes. Um, yes. And it's being able to tell a story over many hours, I think, has really lent itself to telling these female stories. It's also, I mean, I thought that, you know, seeing Kate Winslet in The Mayor of Easttown mm. was, was a great example of that, too. But when you think how novels were first published, many of them were published as serials in the 19th century, whether it was Dickens or, or Thomas Hardy. And, and I hope that we're seeing that emerge again in this sort of golden era of television. And of course, you know, the way The Handmaid's Tale was adapted by Margaret Atwood um, was in yeah. long form drama. I wonder if there's a character that you identify with in your own life or one that you still feel particularly close to as if she's become part of you. I think interestingly, they always feel, um, at the time, I always feel so close to the character that I'm playing that I think I almost am that character. And then afterwards I look back and I think, oh God, I'm nothing like them. You know, there's always, I find like I am drawn to... um, to characters who are maybe a little bit more extreme or amped up or intensified. Um, I think there's always, it's always lovely to play just a little bit of obsession and madness. Um, yes. And, and so, but I mean, in terms of I, I, characters that I've loved playing, um, probably because they're not similar to myself, 
was um, I played a pyromaniac girl in a play called The Chalk Garden that was at the Donmar Warehouse. Yes, which was a wonderful production. Oh, I loved that play and the and the Enid Bagnold who wrote it. I mean, just glorious writing and brilliant, brilliant female characters. But she was just a, an anarchist in the in the best yeah. way and uh, obsessed with murders. Um, <laughs> so I just, I yeah, I absolutely loved doing that and. And then love playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And yes, I was going to ask about that. I mean, that what an incredible woman, and and it was so moving at the end of the film. You know, seeing her, the clip of her, I found you completely believable as her, and I really felt it opened up my eyes to what life had been like as for those first generation of feminists. Yeah, very much, because I, I think with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, people feel like she just emerged into the world, how we saw her, you know, when she'd reached the pinnacle of her career, uh, mm. being being a justice, and that she had always been in her 80s. <laughs> I think it was, yes. it was sort of a revelation for people to see all the millions of times tiny and large fights that she had gone through to earn her position. But, and the, and the way that she had, just that her tenacity was extraordinary. Yes. I mean, in an industry that just didn't want her anywhere near it, you know, in law at the time in the 50s, they would just thought, you know, get out of here and just her absolute sheer determination and belief and unwavering commitment to what she believed in was pretty extraordinary and actually someone who was honoured in their lifetime I think that's what's so special about her as well I mean so many people have to sacrifice themselves for change and never quite know the effect of what they've done but what was so special about Ruth Bader Ginsburg was that she was able to live out her her successes and and be celebrated for them. Can you tell us a little bit about your new film? Yes, it's called uh, The Last Letter from Your Lover. It's based on a Jojo Moyes novel. Um, Mm. It is out in August in the UK. And I think people will be really joyous to see it. It's a very uh, warm-hearted, romantic film about the persistence of love uh, and mm. the, I mean, in essence, it's a, a story about everlasting love. And it's one of those films that you'll really enjoy watching with, you know, a glass of wine or some chocolate. And it has elements of those sort of old-fashioned romances. And it, it just feels like a bit of a break from the monotony of the of the news at the moment. Which is what we all need right now. <laughs> I'm yeah, really exactly. looking forward to seeing it. It's, yeah, I'm. It's definitely um, one I'm looking forward to. And rooted in in letter writing as well, which is um, sort of a lovely thing to celebrate. Exactly, and and also, I mean, for me as a writer, I've always all my books have been rooted in discovering letters in archives, actually, and and that's what um, this story is about, isn't it? It's finding lost letters. Absolutely. Well, you really, there's such an intimacy in 
letters and I'm sure as you've probably found that you yeah. get straight to the heart of things when you go to the source material and and you read someone's outpourings because often you probably find this a lot history will depending on who's telling the story will take things from an individual and to form another narrative and it's mm. interesting and I've optioned with my company a couple of books and one of them is about Emma Hamilton and it's really interesting. Oh, interesting. Yes. Going back to her original letters and you get such a broader understanding and perspective of her and you realise how through a patriarchal lens she's been turned into all these other characters that are so removed from the actual person. Uh, but I imagine you must find that all the time in terms of, you know, writing and historical accounts. Yes. Well, when I was researching this new book about Christian and Catherine Dior, and I found myself, I mean, it was sort of, there's a real magic to have been in the Dior archives and reading these handwritten letters. I mean, the fact in this age of digital age to actually see the marks on yeah. a page that somebody's hand has made. And then in the the archives of, of Ravensbrook, to find unpublished memoirs and letters, I just found it so incredibly moving. And I think that when things survive, you know, these material objects that survive after somebody has died, whether it's a, a letter or or something they've made or drawn or or painted or sewed, that's so extraordinary that the material survival the kind of is that life after death oh yes that's the permanence of someone isn't it that's how they survive through those things but that's what I wonder with emails because what lovely about letter writing is you get all the different you know you get that someone's writing quickly because the writing gets really messy you get the emotional uh, feelings of the person depending on on the writing whereas an email is so hard to navigate emotion because exactly, there's obviously exactly. no feeling in in the way they look so it's going to be interesting whether we'll all be looking at old emails in the future yes and I think also when you're typing very quickly and then you press send instantly something I've learned not to do with experience when you're trying to express something that is emotionally difficult oh, complex yes Yes, it's so much better to either, you know, to to write it and sleep on it. And I think that actual act of writing on a piece of paper perhaps makes one choose one's words more carefully. A little, yeah, being a little bit more discerning, probably because of that feeling that this could outlast you in a way that you don't quite have that feeling writing an email. Yeah. And that actually leads me to my next question, which is that you've warned Dior on a number of occasions, um, including spectacularly so at, at award ceremonies. You know, you look wonderful in Dior. And Maria Grazia Curie, who, as you know, has, has put feminism at the heart of her work for Dior and is the first female creative director of the brand. I wondered how you feel when you wear Dior and and does it feel different wearing a dress that's been designed for you by a woman? I've always found with Dior that it feels as though they're dresses that you could wear to the pub which I know sounds you know they have that combination of extreme 
extraordinary the skill that has gone into them but particularly with Maria's designs you feel there's a an ease to wearing them as well there's a an appreciation of a pragmatism that goes into the designs that you feel cool and you don't feel like a doll I think that's what I love about them they're made for you that's such a great description so yeah you're alive in them you don't become a sort of inanimate doll-like object worn by the dress exactly that you are wearing the dress rather than the dress wearing you exactly it lets your personality come through and there's just a, an edginess and a punkiness to them that I just loved immediately when I saw her when I saw her work with an exquisite eye for tailoring and I wondered if any of the dresses in particular have a sort of emotional significance or, or resonance either because of the occasions you've worn them on or the dress itself. Well, I love how I mean I I'm such a fan of wearing black. I feel it's such a reassuring color to wear and um and I love her use of um net and mesh and the way that even something to the BAFTAs I wore a black tulle dress down to the floor but then she undercuts it by having there was just sort of Christian Dior in gold diamantes on the straps so she just stops it getting too pretty pretty it just always is is slashed with a little bit of something more unruly and I just love that combination. Unruly is such a great word to to describe it there is an unruliness I mean and perhaps that's what liberation in fashion really means that you can feel a sense of of unruliness and and freedom and of not being controlled yeah absolutely I think when it's at its best and you're wearing somebody's ideology which is you know fashion at its at its highest is that, isn't it? It's an extension of that person's view on the world. And and you feel that so strongly with Maria's work. Well, I always think of what Virginia Woolf um, said, and Virginia Woolf, whose use of clothing and her writing is always so powerful and and resonant. You know, you think of Mrs. Dalloway's mermaid sea green dress and for the party, but... And the way in Orlando, you know, the clothes play such an important part. Yeah, they're so vivid, aren't they? It's so vivid. But when she wrote, you know, vain trifles, though they may see seem, clothes change our view of the world and the world's view of us. Absolutely. It's like, I mean, in a completely other end of the spectrum, it's like shades of that are in that scene with Meryl Streep in um, in The Devil Wears Prada, you know, and she has that combination oh, about totally. <laughs> the blue cardigan. Yes. They are powerful symbols in our society and often maligned and dismissed because for many years it's probably, I mean, interestingly, so often male designers designing for women, which is, again, thankfully changing. But it's very frustrated when it's seen as superficial, when it's quite the contrary. Well, I think it's, you know, it's often, fashion is often marginalised by the so-called, you know, the wider culture in terms of its historical and political significance. But of course, it's just as significant as as things that perhaps, you know, get more airtime, whether it's sport or... And to me, you look at Christian Dior's 
new look after the Second World War, which this explosion after the Second World War of magic and romance and daydreaming after the austerity and hardship of the war. I think that when one looks at, at that post-war era through the prism of Dior's new look, it's it's incredibly interesting and yet was often ignored by mainstream historians. Totally. It'll always tell you so much about what is going on in the politics of the time, the the, the fashion. And with, um, interestingly, I watched a documentary about the hair and makeup of the 18th century. And it was fascinating yes. how that, you know, when they had the huge wigs and the painted their faces white with the red cheeks, how much that tells you about the society that people were living in. It's a lens on a political structure of a time through fashion and hair and beauty. But I really hope that Emma Hamilton film comes to pass because that sounds incredibly interesting. Oh, yeah, it's so rich. It's for, um, we're doing it for television. Wow. Oh, even better. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) After our conversation. I mean, there's just so much to cover. And actually, really interesting female characters um, and male characters, admittedly, but um, particularly the way we're telling the story is through three female characters um, who all came from very different stratas of society. But yeah, an extraordinary way of understanding actually feminism and where we are now by looking at the, some of the origins in the in the 18th century. It sounds fascinating and so great that this is a project that you know you have taken on and are making your own with a measure of of autonomy. Um, That's very, very cheering indeed. And bravo and congratulations. So it's been a joy to talk to you. Well, I think you've got to follow your follow your heart post-pandemic, yes. haven't you? I mean, as, as we were Do saying... Do the things that really I mean, that's matter. What it's probably taught us. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, who knows how long we have, so you might as well make it count. Exactly. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you. 